0: You are listening to Rabbi Arya Woolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Thinking Talmudist podcast. All right, welcome back everybody to the Thinking Talmudist series. We are back with another episode. Previously, we've talked about many, many different topics, probably hundreds of topics already. But I don't think we've ever touched on this Gemara. It's a fabulous Gemara at the end of tractate Makot. The end of tractate Makot, the Talmud brings that we know we have 613 commandments. And each of those 613 commandments can be uh, minimized into a single commandment. And then that commandment, though, that the several other commandments can be minimized even further. Means if someone wasn't able to attain all 613 commandments, how many can we minimize them to? So we know, because we've been scholars here learning for many, many years, that our sages tell us that all of the 10 commandments really encompass the entire 613 commandments. How exactly? That we have to learn the Talmud to figure out. Then there are others that say all of those Ten Commandments are all in the First Commandment of the Ten Commandments. So if you only had those Ten Commandments, you can learn the entire Torah. If you only had that one commandment, you'd be able to learn the Ten Commandments and from that all of the rest of the Torah. And then other opinions say if you only had the first word of the Ten Commandments, Anochi. Hashem kecha, right? Anochi, that I am Hashem your God. That would be enough to understand the first commandment and then the 10 commandments and then all 613 commandments. And then our sages tell us if you only had the letter Aleph from Anochi, then you'd know the first letter, the first commandment, the first 10 commandments and all of the rest of the 613 commandments. Why? Because the deeper you go into the connection with Hashem through his Torah, the more you understand. And if we understood the secret of the letter Aleph, we would understand everything. We would understand absolutely everything. We'd understand from the Aleph how it means that Hashem is one. We'd understand how it means that if Hashem is one, we can't have an idol. We would understand that we can't say the name of another idol because that would be sort of creating a second entity from Hashem that can't be. We would understand that Parents are partners with Hashem and therefore we have to honor our parents. We would understand that Shabbos, Hashem wants what's best for us and therefore he commands us to rest, etc., etc. We would be able to derive every single mitzvah from that one commandment, from that one letter. Additionally, we know that the Torah wasn't given till 2,448 years after creation of Adam and Eve. In that case, how did Avram Avinu, Abraham, our patriarch, how did he observe the Torah? The Torah wasn't given yet. We weren't commanded yet to keep Shabbos. We weren't commanded yet all of the commandments of the 613 that we are familiar with in the Torah. So how did Abraham observe it? Oh, that's the secret. He connected with the Anochi Hashem Elokecha. He connected with what it means that I am Hashem your God. And then he understood everything. Now, it also says in the Talmud, we'll get to this hopefully one day, it says in the Talmud that the Torah was created before the world. The principles of the Torah, the mitzvahs of the Torah were created before the creation of the world. The Torah is the blueprint for the world, which is, by the way, just a a problem for the rabbis who say that, I'm not talking about Orthodox rabbis, obviously, but There are those who say that there's the documentary theory. We're familiar with that, right? And there are those who say that it was written by, I can't even tell you the nonsense that these people say. But it's very clear that the Torah is a document that's not like any other document. You don't have any other document in the history of the world that has a self-prophecy in it. Meaning, not only self-prophecy, a self-witness in it. That means you don't have a book that says, yes, we were all there. I'm not talking about just 30 people, 20 people. We're talking about millions of people. And not a single testimony of contradiction to it. We were all at Mount Sinai, and that's what's written in the Torah. And exactly the experience that every single person had is written in the Torah and it's it's a public declaration of the public experience of the public revelation that each person experienced if that was false the people would say sorry this is not this is nonsense but the people all agreed with what is written otherwise they would have thrown out the torah we don't see any record of that that it was thrown out or disagreed to by anyone okay so now we come to a point where the entire Torah is now, we can understand it on one principle. Emuna, Tzadik be emunah so If a person just has emuna, which is what Avram Avinu had, Abraham our patriarch, that's what he had. He had a relationship with Hashem. From that he was able to derive everything. Mistakes that some people have about uh, this documentary theory and who wrote the Torah, The Torah itself declares how Moshe communicated with the leaders, how Moshe communicated with the people, how Moshe is in... There is a public documentation of what happened publicly. So it's not an individual experience where Moshe is writing, this is what happened to me. Plus, there are other things that are written in the Torah that Moshe himself didn't even know about. Like just a few weeks ago, we had the, the story of Balak, Moshe didn't even know about that. He's just sitting there dicta- writing as Hashem dictates and suddenly he hears a story about Balak and he's like, one second, they were on the mountain overlooking the Jewish people. Moshe didn't know anything about this and yet it's written in our Torah because it's a godly document. It's a godly document that was given word by word and when we, I'll just say quickly a story an anecdote to this there's an attorney in Houston a very prominent attorney who I'm close friends with and he told me that he was asked to do a series of classes to students at University of Houston to do a parallel between American law and Jewish law and it's very interesting it's an interesting series i'm sure he was he did a fabulous job because he did a tremendous amount of research so I told him, I said, look, I'm happy to help at any level you need. You just call me literally 24 hours a day. I will be there. Tell me what you need. I'll give you all the information you need for your class, for your series, for your course, and I will happily assist. Okay. It goes a couple of weeks and he doesn't call me. And then one night at 1130 at night, I remember this as clear as day. Uh, at 1130 at night, he calls me up and he's, you can hear distress in his voice. And he says, "Ari, where are you?" I said, "I'm I'm home. What can I do?" He says, "Can you come over to my house right now?" I said, "Sure, I'll be right over." Jump into my car. I head over to his house, and I see him there with a pile of notebooks and pads and and books, and he is in in the in the depths of preparation. I said, "Okay, what's what's the problem?" He says, "I just realized I interviewed four rabbis for my synagogue." I interviewed them with the same questions, and I got four different answers on every single question. He says, help me. I asked them, I said, what what, what did you ask? He says, I asked them who wrote the Torah. And would you believe it that four rabbis each gave a different wrong answer? Four rabbis gave four different wrong answers to who wrote the Torah. So I said to him, close your eyes and imagine you're standing in the synagogue right now. And they pick up the Torah scroll after reading the Torah and they sing a song. I want you to hum that song to me. And he's like, okay. He closes his eyes and I said, okay, I'm lifting up the Torah. And what does everybody start to sing now? Asher Samoche Lifne, right? I, uh, that's right. Al Biyad Moshe. I said, what what is that song? What is that song? Tell me what that song is. What are those words? He says, you know, I never really thought about it. I said, let me tell you, let me translate that for you. I'm gonna read it. I'm gonna read it from inside a sitter so you don't think that I am changing out any words. Okay? Here we go. I'm opening up a sitter right here. And we're going to read this together. This is the Torah that Moshe placed before the children of Israel upon the command of Hashem through Moses' hand. I said, my dear attorney, tell me yourself who wrote the Torah and how did he write the Torah? Moshe wrote the Torah through the word of Hashem. I said, you don't need the rabbi to give you the answer to that. You know the answer yourself. He says, so why? I said, that I can't help you with. I can't help you with why. I know why, but I'm not going to say it because it's not nice. And I only say nice things. So now we're back to our Talmud. And the Talmud here wants to know if a prophet can annul a decree of a previous prophet of an earlier prophet. So the Gemara cites an incident from which it is seen that one prophet, Zechariah, overrode the words of another prophet, Uriah, and the Gemara relates a story. This story is very important for us, particularly in the week of, in the week, next week, is going to be Rosh Chodesh on Wednesday, Rosh Chodesh Av, the beginning of the month of Av, and as you may find in the un, in the Living Jewishly podcast that was released this morning, the laws of the three weeks. It's very important for us to get into the frame of mind of what it means the destruction of the temple. And here, this is an amazing story. Once upon a time, after the destruction of the temple, Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Benazaria, Rabbi Yeshua, and Rabbi Akiva, the four of them, were traveling on the road. Vishamu kol Hamona Shalromi, Miflata. And they heard the sound of the Roman crowds in the plaza of Rome. 120 mil away. Very far away. But they heard the, the noise, the people cheering, and the people excited. From the square in Rome. And the rabbi started weeping. Rabbi started weeping. Now what were they cheering about? Anybody know? So this is approximately 100 miles away. And what happens? The rabbi start crying. What does Rabbi Akiva do? Rabbi Akiva Mesachek. But Rabbi Akiva started smiling. He started laughing. Amr um, they asked him, for what reason are you smiling? He said back to them, why are you guys crying? I'll tell you why I'm smiling, but why are you guys crying? Amrulo, um, they said to him, they said, says these heathens who bow down to idols and burn incense to idolatry live in security and in calm. And as for us, the house which is the footstool of our God, the temple, the holy temple, is completely burnt down, consumed in fire. It was burnt down. Are we not supposed to cry? Look at these guys. These guys are at the plaza. They're doing all of their idolatry. They're living their lives happy, free, easygoing, no problem. And look at us. We're homeless. We don't have a temple. Our temple is destroyed, it's been consumed by the flames of the fires that they burnt it down with. Rabbi Kiva then explained. He says, This is why I'm smiling even though this is right after the destruction of the temple. Omerlein, he said to them, ani He says, this is why I'm laughing. He says, Ma kach. If such is the reward for those who transgress the will of Hashem, that they dwell in security and calm, He says, then for those who do the will of Hashem, much greater is going to be their reward. How much greater why wouldn't I smile? why wouldn't I smile? That means let's understand this let 's take a second. We can sometimes look at nations of the world. This is a question that people always ask by the way, just in another in another vein, if we may for a moment. People ask, how come bad things happen to good people? How come seemingly good things happen to bad people and it's also seemingly bad things but it's not really bad so we have to understand that in order to answer this question we have to understand a what is good what is bad you see we see things from the perspective of the world view that we grew up with the world view that we grew up with was that earn money live a privileged lifestyle and that is happiness and that is goodness I just met with someone yesterday who said he grew up his life that from his parents and his grandparents, you go and make money and you make as much money as you can so that you can retire well and so that you can travel well and that you can live a good life and send your children to college and so that you can leave an inheritance for your family and that's a good life. And he bought into it. Men's over 85 years old. He bought into it. But is that really the truth? Is that really the truth that that's the purpose of life? I think it's clear that it's not. So if someone lives with that perspective, with that doctor, is this a correct medical term, that schema, that original frame of mind that this is what life is about, then you're right. If livelihood is not that great, it's pretty lousy to live life like that. And if they don't have all of their riches, that's a pretty lousy way to live life. But that's not the purpose of life. We're here because we have a very, very special, delicate, holy, pure soul within us that we need to make sure that through the process of our life, we bring it to its perfection. So what happens? We become a lofty soul gets infused into our body. And then we start facing the challenges of life. And Hashem sends every person their perfectly manicured challenge that is perfect for them. You know, I'll give you an example. Marriage. Marriage. Every marriage has its challenge. You show me a couple who are together, I will show you the challenges. Or... Sometimes you don't need me to show you. You, They'll tell you themselves. And everybody has had this thought, you know, if I was actually married to that person, everything would be great. Right? You ever thought that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, if I was married to that person, it would be so much easier. Because they don't have the issues that my wife has. They don't have the issues my husband has. They have other issues. And Hashem custom-tailors every person with their perfect problem that they're going to have to solve in their marriage. You know, I always say this, marriage is a workshop in character development. You will have a – my friend came over to me. We were at a conference together and he was divorced for about a year. And I said, no, how are things going? Are you getting back on your feet? How, you know? He says to me, I'm really worried. He says, on my flight here to the conference, I read a New York Times article that said that they did a study with thousands of divorced people who got remarried a second time. And 98% of those people testified that they had the exact same issues in their second marriage that they had in their first marriage. I said, well, so what's your problem? He says, I'm terrified of getting married again. I said, no, I'll tell you why they had the same problems. Because if you don't change, your problems don't go away. If you don't change yourself, of course you're going to have the same problem the second time around. But when you realize that it's your change that needs to happen, then your problems will be different. This is such an important thing for us to realize that life is not about only living. We mentioned this in our Parsha podcast yesterday. It's very important for us to know this. Life is about challenge. That's what it's about. If you don't have challenge, you're not living. When that line goes flatlined, that's when all the challenges end. There's no more ups, there's no more downs. There's no more ups, there's no more downs. No more downs. Now there's flatlined. No more problems. No more credit card bills, no more insurance payments, no more mortgage payments, no more having to do anything, no more having to deal with my my pesky neighbors. I don't have to deal with this, I don't have to nothing, no more. But we don't want that. We want life. We want life. Do so you know what that means? Dealing with the issues that come our way, the ups and the downs. It's not running away from them. It's not saying, oh, if I was married to someone else, then I wouldn't have those problems. No, 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 no. This is what Hashem wants you to work on. The issues that are confronting you right now are the issues Hashem wants you to work on. And we talk about that many times in our Mussar Masterclass in our Jewish Inspiration podcast, talking about how to overcome challenges, how to work with bad traits of our own, how to deal with negative traits of others, and how to elevate our life's experiences. So that's it's not just a life of filled with problems. Oh, look at me. Life is so miserable. No, life is awesome. Life is filled with opportunities. And it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be on this earth and to have those problems. Show me the person, I'll show you the challenge they have. There's nobody who has no challenges. Nobody. Everybody's got a package. Because only dead people have no problems, they have other issues. We have to embrace the challenges that we have so i don't even know how we got here but we need to understand that when the talmud here is talking about that the sages were oh so we i tell you how we got here so the reward and punishment sorry good, good why seemingly good things happen to bad people and seemingly bad things happen to good people because there is no good and bad it's a facade It's all good. The fact that you have a challenge means that you're in this world and living. It's good. You want to not have that problem? That means you're not living. Every person has got challenges. Now, on the outside, people may portray a picture of look at me in my perfect life, look at me in my perfect marriage. I had a guy last week tell me, that he had known about a couple that have been unfaithful to one another. And he said he was walking in the supermarket with his wife. And his wife comments to him when he sees this couple, when they see this couple, they're like, they have such a perfect marriage. It's unbelievable. On the outside, they display a picture of harmony. I had a couple coming here, right here to the torch center. And they were, if they had stones, they would throw it at each other. If they had guns, they would shoot at each other. If they had sticks, they would hit each other. They were yelling and screaming, and I'm just like the, the balancer trying to keep them out of each other's hair. Yelling and screaming. I said, look, I'm not a therapist. I'm a rabbi. I'm here because I love you, and I want to listen to what it is that – but you need to go to a therapist, and you need to talk this out. You need to have a professional help you. I'm a professional rabbi, but not a professional therapist. I don't even know if I'm that professional either as a rabbi. <laughs> but a few hours later, I see on Facebook, they post this lovey-dovey picture. Like, like, And to the outside world, it looks like they have a perfect marriage. And when they come inside the office, right, doctor? When they come into the office, all hell breaks loose. So don't believe what you see which leads to another thing that we learned in the Mishnah. Don't judge another person. How many times did we discuss this? Don't judge another person because you never know what's really happening. What your eyes see is never the truth. Almost never. Oh, but I saw. They looked like they were so lovey-dovey when I saw them in the grocery store. Oh, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. It's so tragic if we live a life that is just based on what we see. There's so much more going on. And we have to have love and patience for every human being because you never know what they're going through. You never know what they're going through. So my dear friends, don't assume that anybody's having a perfect sweetheart life. Everybody faces their challenges. Everyone has their things. That they need to work on. If everything was so hunky-dory. I guarantee you. You wouldn't have these people in Hollywood. Miserable. Miserable. They portray this life of glamour. You know. And they're walking on that red carpet. And everyone's like. Oh. I wish I could be them. I wish I can have that life. I wish I could. You know. Hang around them. No. I'm telling you. You're not missing anything. They have challenges. Just like everybody else and they have maybe even more because they're being pursued by everyone who thinks that they have such a great life and that they don't have challenges i go into people's homes as a first responder and i see things that the world doesn't see don't be judging anybody i promise you don't be judging anybody you don't know what's going behind going on behind the closed door You never know what's going on. All right, so now back to our Talmud. So the Talmud here says that the three Tanaim were crying. Look at them. Look at the the nations of the world. They're so excited. They're serving their idols. They're living free. They're living calm. They're living secure lives. And Look at us. Our temple is destroyed. Rabbi Kiva hears this and he starts smiling and he starts laughing. Rabbi Kiva says to them, you don't understand. You're seeing this wrongly. You're not seeing this picture properly. He says, if this is the way the idolaters are being rewarded, imagine those who follow the ways of Hashem, how they're going to be rewarded. The problem is that everybody thinks that all the reward is here in this world, and it's not. It's here in this world and in the world to come even more so. It says that the greatest pleasure the greatest pleasure that any human being or all human beings combined can experience in this world. So if you take all of humanity, all the billions and billions of people living in this world and take all of those pleasurable experiences that every single one has, whether they be physical, whether they be spiritual, whether they be from food, whether they be from whatever it is, and you combine all of those experiences of joy and pleasure together, it doesn't equal a millisecond of the world to come's pleasure. It doesn't equal one millisecond of pleasure in the world to come. The ecstasy, the level of joy and pleasure that we experience in our closeness with Hashem is greater one millisecond of it than all of the pleasures of this world, of all humanity combined. So that's what Rebbe Kiva is saying. He says, if you have the nations of the world with their joy and with their excitement and with their security and with their happiness, imagine for us how great it's going to be that we observe Hashem's Torah. Shuv pam achas On another occasion, these same four sages were walking up to Jerusalem after the destruction of the temple. When they reach the Mount Tzofim, which is, Tzof means a, an outlook. So there's a mountain, that from that mountain you can see the whole Jerusalem, and it's so beautiful. When they come to this mountain, and they see the destruction of Jerusalem, they're overwhelmed with sadness, and they tear their clothes. And the halacha tells us that anyone who goes to Jerusalem today and sees its destruction needs to tear their clothes. And there are people You'll see at the Western Wall with torn clothes. Because they see the destruction of the temple, it's a mitzvah for them to feel that pain and to mourn the loss of our temple. But more than that, to mourn Hashem's home being destroyed. This is Hashem's home. Hashem's physical home, Hashem is a spiritual entity. Hashem doesn't have a physical body. But if he were to have a physical body, this is his home for his, his sort of his place where he comes down to this world for us to experience the godliness. So they tore the clothes and were able to see the city of Jerusalem in its destruction. Kiv and Harabais, when they came to the temple mount, they saw a fox emerging from the Holy of Holies, and they started to weep. And Rabakiva was smiling, and he was happy. They said to him, For what reason are you smiling? Rebekah Rabakiva said to them, Why are you crying? Why are you weeping? They said, We're crying because there's a verse that says that a non coin who approaches the temple shall die. And now there are foxes prowling over our temple, and we're not going to cry. You know how a holy the Holy of Holies is? Do you know how holy the temple is? That any non-Kohen who would attempt to walk in would die? Remember the story of Aaron's two sons? They walked in, boom, like electrocuted from the holiness. They were uncalled visitors, unwelcomed visitors into the temple, zapped. And now foxes are walking in there. How can we not cry when we see such a thing? Rabbi Kiva then explained why he was smiling. Omar lahem, he said to them, For this reason I am smiling, because it says, I will summon trustworthy witnesses for myself. The two prophets, Uriah, the Kohen, and Zcharyahu, Ben Yevarechiyahu, What is the connection between Uriah and Zechariah? Uriah Uriah was around during the first temple. And Zechariah was around during the second temple 400 years later. So what's going on? What does one have to do with the other? Rather, by mentioning the two prophets together, Scripture made the prophecy of Zechariah dependent upon the prophecy of Uriah, who came later. But what does it say? But by, by, uh, by Zechariah, who came later. What does it say? But Uriah, therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed over like a field. Jerusalem will become heaps of rubble, rubble and the Temple Mount will become like stone heaps. In the forest, and what does it say in Zechariah? What does it say in Prophet Zechariah later on? Old men and old women will once again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, and it says that the children will be playing in the streets. The streets will be filled, and the boys and girls will be playing in the streets. So what is he saying, Rabbi Akiva? He says, yes, it's true that there will be destruction in Jerusalem. But you know what it also says? That there will come a time where it will all be rebuilt again. There will come a time where Jerusalem will be occupied again. Where the elders will be sitting there with their canes. And the elderly people will be sitting and, and talking. And their children will be running the streets. And the children will be playing. And they'll be laughing. And our temple will be rebuilt again. So what Rebekah Kiva says here. Unbelievable. As long as the prophecy of Uriah had not been fulfilled. I feared that the prophecy of Zechariah would not be fulfilled. Uriah gave a prophecy that it'll be destroyed. Zechariah gave a prophecy That it will be rebuilt. He says, now that Uriah's was fulfilled, I have knowledge that the prophecy of Zechariah will also come to be true. Now that the prophecy of Uriah had been fulfilled and Jerusalem and the temple are totally desolate, it is certain that the prophecy of Zechariah will also be fulfilled. What did the sages say? The rabbis accepted Kiva's reasoning. Biloshon Haze Amru, the rabbis said, the colleagues of Rabbi Kiva said to him, Akiva Nichamtanu, Akiva Nichamtanu, Akiva you have comforted us, Akiva you have comforted us. We have to understand, days are coming. The days of the coming of Messiah are near. All of the signs in this world, the chaotic world that we're living in, There's more chaos today than ever before in the world. There's craziness. There are things that don't make sense. We're looking at ourselves and we're like, what in the world is going on here? Where it says in the prophecy, maybe we'll do this next week, of what's going to be going on in the days of Mashiach. It says that the youngers won't respect the elders. We have that in our generation. It says that the generation will look like dogs You see the way some of these young teens today with their earrings, with their tattoos, with their things, they don't even look human anymore. The face of the generation will look like the face of a dog. This is our generation. Where you have people today publicly saying, I'm suing my parents for bringing me into this world. Who gave them permission to give birth to me? What is wrong with people? And then we have the pacifists who say, oh, we just have to be understanding. We have to, Folks, we have to prepare ourselves for Mashiach. We have to prepare ourselves because our temple is going to be rebuilt through this craziness. We have to recognize these are the signs. We have to be overjoyed that the time is coming where Mashiach is going to redeem us from this exile. We are in exile. I know it doesn't feel that way in 2023 in Houston, Texas, around the world. We can vacation and we can go to Italy and we can go here and we can go there and we have the U.S. passport. We can go into every country and we can travel the world and go on cruises and go here and there, wherever. And we have everything but the axis of our fingers, our fingertips. We're limited. We don't have the freedom. We do have the freedom, but we don't realize that we're, we're limited. We're worried about what people are going to say. We're worried about what people are going to do. I want to share with you. A friend of mine is, was part of an exclusive group of only four people who were trying to inspire one another. And how were they inspiring one another? They were sending pictures every day of themselves wearing tefillin. One guy met another guy on a plane. And he, they had a lot of turbulence. That's the story. The story as I heard it. A lot of turbulence. The Jewish guy sitting next to this religious-looking man. He says to him, can you pray for us? He says, sure. I'll pray that the plane has no turbulence, but you have to promise me that you're going to put on tefillin. He says, tefillin? I haven't put on tefillin since my bar mitzvah. He says, promise me that you're going to put on tefillin. He says, okay. He says, you know what? I'm going to send you a picture of me putting on tefillin, and then you'll send me a picture of you putting on tefillin. A few weeks later, he tells this to his friend, his business partner, and his business partner is inspired. He hears this, and he's visiting in L.A., and he meets one of his associates whose mother-in-law is ill. He says, you know what? Why don't you put on tefillin and send me a picture of you putting on tefillin, and I'll do the same? So they join the group, the other group, and now it's the four of them, and slowly it went to eight and then they said, you know what? They had a friend who is ill with cancer. Let's do it in his honor. And they started sending it out. Today, there are over 1,500 people in that group. And I have the great privilege and honor to be part of that group. And every day I can show you on my phone, I get a buzz every second. Bzz, bzz, buzz, bzz, Hundreds of people we putting on tefillin, taking a picture. That's it. No comments, no notes, no nothing. Just taking a picture of yourself wearing tefillin. And so many of them are saying it. It's been years and years and years since I've put on my tefillin. And now I'm inspired to do it daily. It's unreal, the power that we have to feel a connection. And anybody listening to this podcast Anybody here in the room, anybody watching this online, you're welcome to email me and I will add you to the group. We all need to inspire ourselves. We all need to inspire one another. Take our peer of tefillin, a small little mitzvah, a powerful mitzvah that connects us with the Almighty and put on our tefillin. How long does it take? Anybody who doesn't know how, I did a, a little tutorial Two and a half minutes long. It shows you exactly how to put on tefillin. I'm happy to to send it to anyone. It's a special mitzvah that every person can do. It doesn't take a lot of time. It took me two and a half minutes to put it on. You say the Shema. Five minutes, you're done. And you fulfill the biblical commandment. Many biblical commandments by putting on tefillin. You fulfill the biblical commandment to recite the Shema. It's an unbelievable way to connect to Hashem. We have the power to bring Mashiach. We have the power to end this exile. So I was going to tell you a story. So on Tuesday morning at 4 a.m., I woke up. I was in Passaic, New Jersey. I wake up my son. I said, let's go. I got to go to the airport. I had a flight to Atlanta to be there. I had a full-day conference with a bunch of rabbis, 50 rabbis from around the country. And he takes me to the airport. It's still dark outside. Still cannot put on tefillin yet. Can't daven yet. Can't pray. So I, when I land in Atlanta, the first thing I do is I find a quiet corner in the airport and I stop what I'm doing. I put on my tefillin. And as I'm davening, I notice from the corner of my eye there's someone who's like walking past me and he stops. And he looks and he continues walking, stops, looks again, walks back and then he walks into the little area that I was in, sits in the corner, pulls out of his bag a yarmulke, puts the yarmulke on, takes tefillin out, wraps his tefillin on and I was thinking to myself, you know, I used to be very embarrassed to put on my tefillin in public meaning in a public place like an airport. But then I saw, I don't understand. You have Muslims who don't have any problem bowing down on their mat in middle of the airport. Like literally there are thousands of people walking back and forth in an airport. They have no problem doing it right in the middle of everything. And I'm embarrassed to put on my tefillin? Who are you? Why are you embarrassed? To do the mitzvah of Hashem? And I decided from then on that I'm not going to ever be embarrassed again. I'm going to try not to. And wherever I've been, I've been in Frankfurt in the airport. I've been in Poland in the airport. Wherever I've been, if it's an early morning flight and I can dive in the airport, I'll do it. We cannot be embarrassed of our Judaism. But why are we? Because we're in exile. And we've all had experiences where people looked at us and said, filthy Jew. I had that growing up. I grew up in a Puerto Rican, African-American, Italian neighborhood. We had a whole mixture of people in Brooklyn. We grew up with that exile reminder you're not a free person in a free land. Remember, these are little reminders. When we have anti-Semitism in our generation— it's not because we're not doing enough explaining. It's not because we're not doing enough Israel promotion. It's a reminder from Hashem that we are in Golis. We are in exile. And that's what we're hoping for. We're hoping for Mashiach to come and remove us from this, where the nations will, war- will see the- with clarity that Hashem is the king of the universe. That's what will happen the nations of the world are suddenly going to realize, oh my goodness, you're right. The Jews were right. We hope that it comes speedily in our days and that our temple is rebuilt today. Because the Talmud says that in every generation that the temple was not rebuilt, it's as if it was destroyed in that generation. So by the temple not being rebuilt today or this year on the 9th of Av, And we have another fast day that means that we weren't worthy of having it rebuilt. And not having it worthy of being rebuilt means that if it was around in our generation, it would have been destroyed. We have a lot of work to do as a people. We have a, a lot of work to do as a nation. Our job for ourselves, our job for our families, and our job for the world to show the world that we are a good example. I'll just end off with one quick story. My son is in Jerusalem and he's learning in yeshiva there. And he's heading home for the summer. He's having a little summer break. So he's coming. He's going to visit with us. And I told him, I just want you to remember, you're traveling. You're the example of what it means to be a symbol of Hashem. You're studying His Torah all day. You're studying His Torah all day. People look at you And they say, that is the representative of God. That is the representative. Who else is the representative? If not, the people who are learning Hashem's Torah all day. Make sure that you always remember that. Remember that you are the representative of Hashem. Remember that people are looking at you. You don't cut lines. You're not disrespectful. Because sometimes you don't realize that. You don't grow up with that consciousness. You have to remember it. This is our responsibility. My dear friends, we should all merit that our temple be built speedily in our days. Amen.